the worst actors that, you know, make me um, want to fight people on LinkedIn, which is a crazy sentence. I it <laughs> will emphasize this idea that, oh, thank God, AI. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of from San Diego, California. I have my co-host, Keith Foster. And you are Cassidy Robinson, and you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And I believe we have a special guest with us on this episode. Yes, joining us today from Los Angeles, California, uh, my old friend Alec Ingerson specifically brought you on today because, of course, one of the big news items film-wise of the summer has been around the uh, writer strikes and the, uh, is it the production? Uh, which guilds are striking currently? Currently, WGA, which is the Writers Guild of America, and SAG, which is the Screen Actors Guild, are both striking. DGA, which is the Directors Guild, uh, has they, signed a deal. They settled, so. yeah. Yeah, they they took a deal. Yes. Um, and you've been somewhat involved in the strikes. We have a picture down here that I uh, pulled from your uh, social media of you at one of the at one of the strikes, and you've been working um, in television. And I believe you're uh, a, you've had some screenplays you've worked on and things as well. Yeah, I can give you. Um... I'll give you my quick uh, spiel. So, yeah, I, I've been working now for about 10 years, uh, almost nonstop in entertainment, various capacities. Um, originally in post-production is where I cut my teeth. Luckily enough to transfer into uh, live shows eventually and then eventually production then development. I spent about four years as a development executive um, for a production company with an overall deal uh, at Disney, and before that, a production company with a first look deal at Sony. Um, I developed projects for other people for a very long time and eventually decided to focus on my own career. So like a little over a year and change, I left my development job and focused on writing, um, became very fortunate and ended up working on the show True Lies, which was for CBS. It was a procedural adaptation for broadcast television based on the James Cameron film of the same name. Uh, and yeah, I worked on it as the showrunner's assistant. Uh, the showrunner is Matthew Nix. He, I've never called him Matthew before. I don't know why I said that. Matt Nix. <laughs> and he, he created most famously probably Burn Notice and um, The Gifted for Fox and The Good Guys as well. Uh, Matt ran the show. We aired for one season on CBS and Paramount Plus. We are canceled, so it's done. But it was a lovely time, and I was very fortunate to be a big part of the show and, and be allowed to do a lot for it. Um, I'm, very, I'm very glad and lucky for my experience there. Yeah, and I believe you also... Uh, are signed to... Yeah, so then, yeah, also me as a writer, um, I am signed to an agent at Gersh uh, Liratan, who 
uh, I'm very appreciative of. And if she listens to this, thank you, Lyra. Uh, love you. You're amazing. And Dowslin Lamb, who I feel very much the same about, uh, huge supporters of me. And I'm grateful that they believe in my work. Uh, prior to that, I've also sold projects to Lifetime um, and... <sighs> That's really actually the only thing I should talk about. But uh, I was fortunate <laughs> enough to meet with some really cool production companies and talk about some new shows to get into, hopefully, after the strike. Yeah, which, you know, insider knowledge, you've been on, mm-hmm. you've been on the, uh, the picket line. You've, uh, I'm sure you know more about, like, the goings-on of, you know, whatever you're allowed to divulge about deals that may or may not come soon. Where does it look like they're at right now in terms of settling? Yeah, okay. So for my own, um, I don't know, like sense of honesty and safety and stuff, uh, I am not a spokesperson for the WGA. Nothing I say is necessarily representative of the Guild at large, and I'm not on the negotiating committee, and that should be very clear. So I've never been in the negotiating room. Most WGA members are not in the negotiating room. We have a team of uh, negotiation committee leaders who are our leadership here. They are having all the conversations and they divulge information to us um, when they can, when it's appropriate, uh, when it's in the best interest of the guild. Uh, I'm a you know, pretty firm believer in guilds and the importance of them. Um, I think our leadership has done a really good job of making our demands very clear and and talking us through which ones are important and why. And there have been, you know, the the truth of the matter is, I'm sure you guys have seen the movie like Blue Collar and stuff like that. Any, or, or uh, Madwan or Huron County, any, essentially what I'm trying to say is anytime there is a massive collection of people who are not the people in power, it's extremely hard to make everybody be on the same page about something. Mm-hmm. And there will always be, there will always be infighting and conflict and debate internally about which things are more important than others. So I have my own parts of our, you know, proposed contract that I think are really important. And then other people have parts that they think are more important and we might not be aligned, but I do believe we have pretty incredible solidarity um, as a, as a guild and along with SAG who is, uh, a partnering guild for the strikes. Uh, and yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And, uh, okay. you know, just going into that a little bit, even though mm-hmm. uh, you're not uh, a WGA member yet, um, mm-hmm. what does Alec Ingerson, non-representative of the guild itself, what do, what are your uh biggest fears or worries um or priorities coming into or, negotiations or and and optimisms what you know what sure. do you think yeah yeah keith i'm uh you don't know me super well i am not <laughs> an optimistic person uh that <laughs> i said, mean uh, it's pretty bleak right now so i was yeah. just throwing that out there <laughs> I mean, yeah look that said like for me, and I think for almost anybody who's on the lower level uh, of the spectrum of writing jobs, like just to break it down, a, a writer's room typically has levels and a big enough room will have more clear diversity in the levels. But 
essentially the lowest level writer you can be you know as a writer on a show is a staff writer uh above that is a story editor eventually executive story editor co-producer producer supervising producer <laughs> co-ep and ep and showrunner um not every show is going to have everyone of those jobs uh true lies we actually we had four staff writers one co-producer one producer uh three co-eps and matt nix the showrunner so we were about 10 people um our seconds were a writing team so paycheck wise we were nine people mm-hmm. but that was our that was our our room size and that was our our breakdown um for me and yeah like i said everyone basically below producer level the priority is surely room staff minimums um for a lot of reasons i mean the most basic being this issue of mini rooms that has become a thing in the last few years uh probably between five and ten but i didn't look that up so no one should quote me uh, but the mini room is a small group of writers, sometimes three, sometimes two. Uh, with a shortened time, a writer's room can go about 20 weeks to 40 weeks, depending on how long the show is and the series order. These mini rooms are typically five weeks and three writers. And they've just made it exceptionally hard for lower level writers to work, um, partially because if you only have three slots, you're reasonably, as a showrunner, inclined to find people who are, will be the most helpful for you. And if Mm -hmm. producer level people are willing to take a kind of a pay cut for these shortened rooms to do it, it's hard for low level people to compete with them. Um, Despite people's best wishes and hopes, Hollywood is not a meritocracy. You do not get, you're just because you're an amazing writer does not mean you're going to be working. Not that I'm making that as an excuse for myself. I think I'm a very fine writer, but I think um, for a lot of low level people, becomes very hard to get into a room that only has one or two slots right so i think our our big our big push is for these room minimums and uh the negotiating committee has made it clear that it's a very big point that they are devoted to um i'm choosing to believe that them 100 and that that is true and i think part of what is emphasizing how crucial it is is that it also seems to be the thing that's in the news the most uh and attack the most um i don't think that's an accident i mean variety deadline a lot of these publications are owned by members of the amptp which is the organization negotiating on behalf of the studios um they have made it pretty clear in fact actually today an article came out about it about how showrunners don't really want it and the another thing that's important to say, besides that I am not uh, a representative and no one should listen to me, uh, is that the WGA has a media blackout during negotiation, which has restarted. We finally have started negotiation again. So we are not saying anything to the press until it's done. Uh, so nothing that comes out into the press is actually sanctioned word. It, Mm-hmm. is not necessarily even true it should not be fully believed until it is corroborated by the wga and the amtp amptp uh so i just want to make that clear uh no, and then with that the makes common sense. issue well i just also want to emphasize that articles read 
from Deadline and Variety yeah. are also not necessarily factually based. Like besides not taking my word, I, I'm, I'm extending that you should not take any news publications word because the WGA has no conversation with the media right now. It's media yeah, blackout. And from, from what I understand, a, a big part of, um, and this might just be me speculating here, um, but from what I understand, that seems to be kind of a tactic of AMPTP is sort of is trying to control the narrative um, because, you know, they feel like they are in this position of holding all of the cards um, and the labor force is telling them, no, you don't. You know, we we need these things to continue working. Yeah, and and I think the fact that they've signaled this out as such a focal point of the media emphasizes its importance. Um, it's really just about protecting jobs. I mean, a ton yeah. of jobs have minimums, and and any job that's done safely also typically will have a minimum. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's a reason that there have to be two pilots in a plane. <laughs> like, oh, right. you know. Yeah. Yeah. If you're very shrewd and and completely profit focused, you know, you'd be like, well, fuck that, man. One dude. And he doesn't even have to be there the whole time. Like you could hire a <laughs> pilot for an hour, then take him off the clock for autopilot and then put him back on the clock for the landing if you were a real piece of shit. But um, we don't do that because it's not safe. It's not effective. It's not the smartest way to do that. And the mm-hmm. same is true of writing. I'm not saying that writing is such a dangerous job, but being a showrunner is a hard job it pays well and there are good elements to it but it's hard and it is a it is a craft right it is an artistic craft i mean you know it makes sense where you're talking about uh you know if you just look at the wga or you look at uh these how a writer's room typically works versus what they'll be pushed into if said people were had their their way with it. It's just a microcosm of everything else. You're talking about skeletal staffing that happens mm-hmm. at Walmart. That happens. Um, yeah. it happens fact- everywhere. Factory it, it, it floor. Happens at every labor. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the purpose of unions, right? right. Is, right. is to protect the workers from exploitation, um, from the people who are so far removed from it. And, and, this idea that you know once once money is achieved at a certain level you can cut out the actual labor that creates whatever industry it is that's the point that is the the entire point of the union is to protect the workers to make sure working conditions are safe uh and functional you know like you right and not yeah. for nothing but Ultimately, this will have better outcomes for the product. I mean, you're yeah, going absolutely. to have a better show where you have more people in the room being able to work on it and they're less stressed and they're less pressed for time. Mm-hmm. They're going to yeah. be more creative, not less. So everybody, it should be a win-win if people don't think short-sightedly. But, I mean, that's never <laughs> how it goes. No, of course not. And And – the worst actors that, you know, make me um, want to fight people on LinkedIn, which is a crazy sentence. I it <laughs> will emphasize this idea that, oh, thank God, AI has has come because it is going to make art better. 
because all these shows the last five years have been so bad it can't get worse at AI. that's like a, a recurring statement that i've been hearing a lot and i would just challenge that thinking in the politest way possible as i hold all my fucking rage inside uh <laughs> to say if you feel shows have gotten worse which i'm not even saying they are i think that there's like very hard to have any kind of conversation about if things are worse in general but um if you do think shows have gotten worse i would challenge you that it is more likely a result of mini rooms and shrunken writers rooms and a lack of writers on set than it is writers are bad now because i just if you were to imagine this idea of a room uh of people who are writing episode after episode after episode of show under incredible stress and time when there's three people and five weeks to write it and then by the time they're done writing it they're gone for about a or they're gone for about a month between writing it and it's shooting let's just say this is a very popular practice like writers who are done with a show before it films they have one writer on set usually the showrunner maybe a producer right. the amount of pressure that these very few people are under is maybe not making them make the best work they can and again i'm not trying to excuse like some shows are bad for a plethora of reasons this is not the only reason but i would just challenge those people who feel things are bad to understand that we think our fixes will help that um and i think that and yeah it's hard to have these conversations about bringing up ai obviously it's like a big part of the conversation right now right we didn't even uh, get into that and uh yeah. you know i know that, also, that, that has is... been a big part of the negotiations so when i bring up the execs part of why i bring it up is not to belittle the job or make it seem easily replaceable it's to say like the execs who are quiet now because they're worried about their job currently i do think it's worth being supportive and speaking out for writers because Absolutely. you are as replaceable if not more it's why i mean shout out gersh and and rain um my reps and a bunch of other reps i mean verve is, and and wme like a bunch of them have done amazing things right now they're exceptionally mm. on our side uh because the truth is they can't get 10 percent of nothing yeah. uh, well, so and, they're and aware ultimately of the nobody wants a strike right like you know you know nobody even at amptp uh they don't want to have zero content to you you know what i mean like of course that that's why it's it's as, as a complete outsider frustrating to watch because yeah. it's like the answer is so obvious it's yeah. it's so obvious just like treat people fairly um and you know i think once that finally clicks once that finally sticks uh we will hopefully be able to find a way forward with a solution um it's not that all producers are evil it's that everybody is trying to find a way that moves the industry forward uh you know with the least amount of bullshit um the other thing we're gonna the other things we're getting on uh onto today we're gonna review teenage mutant ninja turtles mutant mayhem um kind of changing gears a little bit <laughs> and then uh for the uh streaming homework you brought to the table uh ghost dog uh the jim jermush film which we watched on hbo max 
uh, which I believe I watched was, on the Criterion channel. Yeah, Criterion for, released it. HBO Max has a yeah. deal with Criterion, so there's a lot of stuff from Criterion you can watch on HBO Max with it currently. But they had the little Criterion stinger on HBO before I watched it. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, right. cool, yeah, yeah, yeah. Criterion put out the uh, this hip hop playlist this month, so that was also part of what nice. my brain. Right, which also ties in really nicely with uh, with TMNT. All right, uh, so if you would like to uh, just give us a quick rundown of what uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem is about, with no spoilers. Okay, uh, sure, yeah. Uh, it's a reimagining of the classic comic book uh, animated and film series, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. In its most broad terms, it is about a group of turtles who are brothers uh while they were normal everyday turtles they got their way into some chemical ooze that transformed them into mutants they became quite tall uh and (laughs) able to (laughs) talk and were raised by their father who is a rat named splinter uh who was also affected by the ooze uh and is voiced by jackie chan and is trying to keep them safe in a world suspicious of anything other. How's that? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, essentially, you know, that is the the core canon of all things Ninja Turtle. Uh, there yeah. have been some adjustments or changes to this specific adaptation. Uh, Absolutely. For one, this is one of the first Ninja Turtle properties that I can think of that really emphasizes them as teenagers, in some cases, preteen. Yeah. Um, well, this is the, the first time that they have actually been represented by teenagers. The voice actors themselves are teenagers, and that is new to the franchise. Right. It's not Cassidy's t- point, though, we've almost always ignored the teenager element of them, right? They've yeah, always it, it's always very been... tall, very large, very adults. <laughs> and, uh, I think this this aspect of them sort of like uh, wondering about their future and mm-hmm. and uh, having this want for the outside world, this, you know, aerial part of your world sort of fantasy um, and wanting well, to, it's, it's, to join it's the human real. world. It's these very relatable, especially in your teenage years, this very relatable idea of, you know, uh, wanting to be – to not be an outsider, to be included and, you know, to to feel like you have some connection to a world larger than, in this case, a sewer. Yeah, whereas before in the other previous Turtles iterations that I – that I know of. There have been many since I was a kid, but uh, you know, part of the reason they were ninjas is because of the art of being able to hide or to escape, and they use mm-hmm. that in in a lot of ways to stay to stay secret. And they never, with with the exception of wanting to hang out with April, um, that never seemed like a big part of their narrative as it is here. And mm-hmm. I think. Uh, the comic started back in the 80s, you know, around when you and I were born. Um, uh, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird created 
the one of the most successful independent comic books ever made uh mm-hmm. with you know they were just in their fucking garage or basement or whatever drawing these ninja turtle cartoons it sold as a cartoon um and then you know this generation in the late 80s early 90s was introduced to it by the original movie uh which was you know produced by the jim henson company also the at the time the most successful independent film of of its time mm-hmm. um huge, oh, i didn't know that yeah a hugely successful cartoon on saturday mornings and it has i i mean say what you will about the ninja turtles it has had legs and a big part of that is its ability to reinvent itself you know there was the jim henson movies there was the 80s and 90s cartoon there was the late 90s early 2000s cartoon uh there was the cartoon movie there has been you know the the michael bay live action movies uh i think by embracing this idea of reinvention um that you know each incarnation of the turtles is like this is its own thing we're not beholden to whatever has existed before to me that's sort of written into the world of you know it's constantly reinventing itself it's it's well, existed it for so unless yeah. unless they want we're specifically trying to go for a nostalgia effect or um you know mm-hmm. a period piece or something like that they have to reinvent and the way that this movie does um specifically is these group of turtles are really plugged into the internet they're looking at their phones <laughs> they're mm-hmm. uh experiencing the world virtually and it, there's something i don't want to get too heady about a t- turtles movie but there's something almost kind Fucking of let's do it, man. <laughs> yeah, why not? Fuck it. There's something Fuck almost it. sort of post COVID about about this movie. This idea, sure. of, you know, the it being stuck in one place and not being able growing to... up in isolation and and, yeah, and having access to this sort of past world and past media and and seeing this world that feels like it's, like it's existing without you, like I. I can absolutely see a, a, a post-COVID youthful generation connecting with that as a story. Right. I, I mean, that. you know, the, the two years or so for a lot of kids who the way they hung out with their friends was on Zoom. Mm-hmm. And the way that, you know, the, there's a, the overall theme of the movie, you know, being, you know, yes, wanting to be accepted and wanting to belong to something, but also uh this sort of fomo theme yeah. sure yeah yeah of course which is yeah i mean we could say it's covid or we could just say maybe even exacerbated by kids who grew up completely with social media i mean right. i was so i mean we're the last generation that was not raised with the internet already existing right or at least right. i mean obviously it existed it's existed for quite a while but in the form that we know it now where it's right. in everyone's house and pocket like 
we're we're the end of that. Everyone else has grown up with a different version of it. And not to say I think mm-hmm. that that's necessarily like the most important theme of the film, but it is an interesting element of it. And something that just to speak generally of of movies like Turtles and and genre, um, why I write mostly genre and what I think attracts me and a lot of people to genre is that you connect so deeply with the monster, right? It's something Guillermo del Toro talks about a lot. It's something mm-hmm. any one like me who's ever in a general meeting with a production company is going to talk about mm-hmm. but the idea of if you've ever felt othered in any kind of capacity, you see yourself in the monster, you see yourself right. in the freak. And, and yeah. I think, you know, I think we all have our things that make us feel othered, you know, some people more than others. I had plenty of for myself growing up. And, and so turtles were extremely fascinating to me oh what's this group of people who are pretty dope but no one really knows how dope they are and or doesn't trust them because they look a certain way or act a certain way or, for sure or feel a certain way yeah, yeah. And, and and this idea of like dependency on those closest to you who are the most like you um yeah but on, mm. on the b plot side of it uh and you know plot with a capital p uh, you have the whole situation of Baxter Stockman, who had created a mutant fly. Now, instead of being the fly himself in this version, he had mutated a fly who becomes Superfly, voiced by mm-hmm. Ice Cube, and who mm-hmm. is uh, and uh, has a host of other mutant criminals that he hangs out with: Bebop and Rocksteady. Um, I don't know. I recognize about half of them from the toys. But, <laughs> oh man, I mean, okay, we got Wingnut, we got Mondo Gecko, we yeah. got Genghis Frog, uh, we got Leatherhead, um, we got so many fucking turtle toys in here. And they are working for Superfly in some plot to harvest more ooze to uh, level the playing field, as it were. Um, yeah, the, the, essentially the, 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 the plot of X Men One, right? It's the X Men One yes. story right. or of ama- Magneto is going to Amazing Spider Man One. Everybody <laughs> yeah. other than mm-hmm. all of a sudden we fit in, right? Yeah, reverse syndrome or something even too. I guess actually just what syndrome is doing in it. It's a it's a it's a tried and true plot. Yeah, device, I guess yeah, would be the way to say it. It, yeah. it's it, it's this idea of trying to be included through violent. Uh, reprehensible means. Right, yeah. yeah. At a point, the turtles sort of come into contact with them, and they are they come to a moral crossing point of, well, here's a bunch of people who are like us and who are doing just fine. They've figured something out. Or do we want to try and make it work with the humans, mostly represented by April O'Neil, who... Uh, is voiced by the girl from the bear. Io Edabiri. Yes. And she's playing a high schooler here. Um, mm-hmm. She wants to get on staff with the school uh, editorial page or the, the news. So it's a version of uh, it's a version of of a reporter like she has been seen in other media but uh again emphasize well, in, in, young... in this case yeah she yeah. she is kind of paralleling the you know that you know she's in high school she also uh is 
part of this sort of coming of age story. Um, you, you know, she hasn't fully come into her career as a reporter yet, as right. we knew her from the old cartoon and the old movies. But but this, I you know, she is also growing the same way the the turtles are. There's an aspect of this movie that is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Year One. Um, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, while, while going its own path. For for my money, it's maybe the best characterization of the turtles and April put to the screen. We're kind of getting into some uh, my first big critique of the movie, which, for what it's worth, I like the movie quite a bit. Um, mm -hmm. And I'll get into my reasons why I like the movie. Uh, but to start just with the stuff that I don't think worked as well... I don't think there's a lot of characterization. Give it, give it one compliment before let's compliment sandwich a little bit. Give it one nice thing before we get into it. Well, I love looking at it. I mean okay. the the, oh, the okay the animation, the character design, the style, the lighting, the production design, the soundtrack by Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor, one of their best to date. Uh, the oh set, the soundtrack they on top of it. Way harder than they needed to for a Ninja Turtles movie. Oh, and, and holy it shit, it paid off big time. So yeah, compliment sandwich. Yeah. I, 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 on an artistic level, this movie is perfect. Uh, my biggest problem, one of my biggest problems with it is, besides Donatello, who he has a, you know, he. Uh, he has a higher voice and glasses and they play a little bit into the nerdy thing. And, and uh, Leonardo is being sort of the reluctant leader of the group and them sort of like teasing him all the time. Other than that, the group dynamic feels kind of non-existent. They, they sort of gel into just one entity, the whole movie and I feel like we're I don't. The same, we're doing the same I, head, Bob. I just watched Keith and me move our head the exact same way. Because I com I disagree. I felt like they did such a, like, we. you have Leonardo as this kind of young tryhard. You have a young scientific mind with Donatello who is constantly figuring things out in this. And they always, I, I felt like, did it in these fun, like, sort of action-y set piece ways. Uh, they they are constantly referring to Raphael and his, uh, you know, testosterone level. They say it, his... but I didn't see it. Like, I, if they, oh, if... I what are you talking about? Every fight, he was like the first to run in there. Uh, uh, I no, I completely disagree. I the the one I will say I felt like a little was downplayed was Michelangelo as. Because typically Michelangelo has sort of been like the comedic relief. Right. And I, I, I will feel like in this version, they are all so young that I did not feel that as much. Um, but I felt like the rest of the Turtles characteristics shine through in, in albeit maybe more modern ways. Um, but I still felt like they all had unique, distinct voices. Okay. I mean... I just felt like I would. I personally would have liked to take a beat individually with them at some point in the movie, just to give them a bit more than their function in the plot. 
Um, sure. Yeah, a lot of the time they're working so cohesively and they're all kind of pitched similarly as far as their enthusiasm that they sort of felt indistinguishable from scene to scene, other than their colors, obviously, and uh, uh, so interesting. So, where what they were given to do within an action set piece. That's very interesting. I, I, I say it's interesting because I have a friend when I asked. Uh, who's your favorite turtle? His response was, "Are they different?" Uh, because and he had seen, <laughs> he had seen, you know, the live action films, and and maybe that was it. But he, you know, he at least <sighs> had a cursory knowledge. Uh, and I was very confused by that because in my mind they'd always been so different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, I said this earlier, but I really do think this movie's maybe the best characterization of them as TMNT as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that we've uh, that we've gotten. Um, I I. I'm inclined to agree with you, Alec. I, I feel like they they were played younger, yes. And I can I can kind of see where Cassidy's coming from in that they felt more familial than maybe mm-hmm. they have in past incarnations. Um but but for my money, I still felt like all of their personalities very Ooh. much came through. Um, yeah. and, and I, I thought that for me, it was refreshing to see them sort of work all of these things together as a cohesive unit versus sort of pitching each individual toy, um, you know, <laughs> which m- you, maybe the cartoon did a little bit more than this did. Um, but well, I certainly I, the movie, I think. The, the original 1989 um, New Line Cinema yes. version. The, the, the one, yeah, it was a little yeah. more dark. It was a little more adult. The, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Jim Henson did the fucking incredible animatronic uh, yeah. facial work. and um, But even then, I still feel like, I actually feel like these turtles are more unique than those turtles except like in in the original 89 movie if you really look at it you have Raphael as this sort of uh uh dissident you have Leonardo as the come on guys I'm the leader of the group mm-hmm. and I feel like Michelangelo and Donatello just kind of sat off to the sidelines and yeah, you know, sort of provided comedic relief. I feel like this movie, uh, the 2023 Mutant Mayhem, does more to give them each individual voices than than maybe any incarnation of the turtles we've seen, except for the theme song, which told us that right. Donatello does machines. Michelangelo's a party dude. Raphael's yeah. cool but rude. <laughs> right. And, and I, look, I'll say this to as to not just beat up on Cassidy's You're opinion fine. here, but like, <laughs> I, if you were a Michelangelo fan, if he's your number one, yeah, maybe I could totally see wishing he had another moment in this film to shine. He, I wish all of he them maybe, did. I, I but, have a friend who is yeah. uh, his, his name is Mike Mike Brown. He's been on the podcast before. Uh, his favorite turtle was Michelangelo because Mikey um, 
And I guarantee you he lost his shit. Oh, yeah. When Michelangelo talked about doing improv. Like, I oh, guarantee God. you. Yeah. That's, like, yeah. that's what I mean. Like, I, I feel like it was maybe a little more subtle or, or a little more baked in versus like this is the character and this is their one thing that defines them. I, I felt like they had these individual personalities, but by, you know, treating them as truly teenagers and, and casting them as this familial unit, maybe it's just a little less on the nose. I mean, oddly, it's slightly less cartoony. All right. Yeah. Like it's a very cartoonish yeah. thing to give everyone kind of one thing and be like, that's your that's your deal. They do feel very similar a lot of the time in the way that I think any family is similar. Brothers can be similar with key differences. Yes. I, I feel like it's weirdly less broad. <laughs> mm-hmm. OK. Yeah. I mean, um, other opinions are available. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I. I I think part of the reason if they they feel the way they do or the way they they the dynamic is a little bit more compressed is because the movie as a whole is a little bit more compressed because it's it's sure. moving a lot more it's 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 yes. because it's animation um because the budget is probably I would say significantly higher than previous turtle incarnations um the oh, movie well, compared to the, the is Bay produced ones. No, yeah. no. I mean, compared to well, the Michael yeah, Bay yeah, produced but, films, not even close. Well, but just those, in animation, probably, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a seventy million dollar movie, so I mean, yeah, I'll guarantee you, it's more than any made for TV movie yeah. for sure. And and I think that you know the the style of the the movie comes a lot in the way that it's pasted, edited, and the way shots yeah. are designed and the way uh, the set pieces are sort of fluid and you know there that we could make the comparison to uh the spider-verse movies because i think that is their closest analog it's stylistically but mm-hmm. totally. um yes and no uh I, i'm gonna put a little asterisk on that because i i want to hear what you have to say but i, I want to come back to that well I, I meant just in the way that they move you know we talked a lot about um and when we did the spider the last uh, spider-verse movie that you know that movie so cleverly weaved in story and plot along with action set piece i think mm-hmm. this movie doesn't quite th- uh braid those ideas as well but that but it's a big part of what it's going for stylistically i i I don't want to say I'm going to disagree with you, but I want to just fucking I want to just set aside like, you know, a minute to gush about the animation. No, here. please do. Because, uh, because I, I think that's I, the I, takeaway I, of the movie for well, me. I, I feel like it's very easy to compare it to Spider-Verse, right? Because it's this it exists outside of this world of animation that we have um been a part of for so long right it it exists outside of pixar and dreamworks and disney it it, it looks sketchy it looks intentionally rough um Mm -hmm. you know the the character designs are oddly shaped and weird and a little gross um but i i what i'm going to challenge you on is that i think it is actually very different than Spider-Verse. I think 
Spider-Verse is this idea of sort of encompassing every animation trick we've ever known into a cohesive story, which in and of itself is a miracle. Um, to me, this feels very, uh, uh, it feels cartoony in a way that is meant to elicit this sort of sketchbook vibe. You know, you, sure. you have these, yeah. these backgrounds that are sort of rendered more in abstraction a lot of the mm -hmm. times. Um, a, a lot of the style has this kind of sketchy, cartoony, shape-forward look uh, that I, I think it is easy to make the comparison to Spider-Verse because it Spider-Verse references animation that looks like this. But to me, this is a singular vision that that looks specifically like this. Like the whole movie looks this way of written in the margins of a notebook, but with the polished animation uh, that comes from 3D model, you know, in, yeah, and yeah. incredible amounts of effort uh, yeah. to 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 take these ideas of like, okay, what if we take this face and it looks a little sketchy and not exactly representational. But then we render it fully and make it a character. Like, what if we incorporate that into the design? Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like that is operating on a different level than Spider-Verse. And I agree that Spider-Verse is more ambitious just because it is it is drawing from every possible idea of animation for the past hundred years. Mm -hmm. And but to me, this is a more specific and unified uh artistic direction sure i i yeah. think is worth I mean, making the distinction of yeah I, yeah I mean i think to be fair this movie whether this movie gets made is i think in debate if spider-verse does not exist so i sure. do think from purely from like a business standpoint yeah. the comparison is fair because i you truly don't see this necessary and look maybe yeah. no 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 I, I i agree with you completely i've been saying that since the first spider-verse came out was it is going to completely change the yeah. landscape of animation in that now we know what's possible. And and I do agree with you that this could not exist in this version right. uh, without Spider-Verse sort of breaking those walls down. But I, I, I just feel like it is worth mentioning that to me, this is much more specific and right. Yeah. It's not a one for one. Uh, I wasn't trying to say that. I think what mm -hmm. I mean is that they're both kind of going for this sort of, um uh tactile uh pop art aesthetic what is animation truly capable of can we incorporate 2d and 3d can at, we incorporate at the same time yeah yeah, yeah and, and you know i think both of them are rebellious in that way like right yeah. you know they're they're saying hey like not to diminish but like you've gotten very used to a certain aesthetic with animation obviously the mm -hmm. pixar 3d Animation has, has been very prevalent for a long, long, long time. And that's not to say that there weren't movements away from it, but it's obviously been such a massive part of American culture. Yeah. You know, I, The Last Wish, the Puss in Boots movie, was also kind of similar to this style mm -hmm. and, and I think very effective for it. Um, but I think Spider-Verse and this saying like, hey, animation is a lot of things. Like in the same way, yeah. no comic book is going to be drawn 
on the same way a comic book was drawn. No animation needs to be exactly the same. And and and, and also fuck you for being the popular thing, right? Like I think that's inherently yes. sort of yeah, it. Yeah. I think the rebellious nature of it is is important to the story thematically, and then just the creators. You know, I mean, Evan well, and Seth are a big part of it as well. And and I like that this movie again, just to gush on it is a little bit gross. It's a little dirtier. It's a totally. little less polished. Like, you, you know, the yeah. character designs are intentionally sometimes a little wonky and a little abstracted and a little oblong. And, and you get a lot of shape leading character versus shape sort of carved away down to character. And, and, it, there's sort of a rawness to it that I think yeah. captures this that sort of original feel of the indie comic book. You know, mm-hmm. we just did this in a garage without a lot of technical training kind of vibe that the original comics had. And and perhaps more honest to a characterization of New York and, and humans. Yeah. Right? Like, so, they, you know, there isn't a strong push to make anything feel like sleek and sexy you know that's not to say like that's not to say like none of these characters are fuckable but it's just more to say like (laughs) they were like hey like what if these people look like people and what if the people who aren't people looked like kind of gross and weird but you had an affinity for them anyway right even if something is using a sort of sketchy crosshatchy um ink blotty look it always looks like a finished product. It doesn't look like it was a rush job or anything like that. It's it's always right. understood as part of the aesthetic. And it, it it going into what Alex said, it kind of uh pulls up the feel of that sort of grungy late eighties New York without just doing that. Um yeah. and, and I guess I should I should also emphasize that I am from New York. So um Okay. I'm not from the city. I'm not from, my mom's from Brooklyn. I'm from Long Island. Uh, I spent my, my childhood uh, as a New York kid. Um, and so for me, this movie, and when we get to Ghost Dog, an element of it too, is, hey, how did this feel? Did this feel authentic to a reality? And Spider-Verse does as well. And uh, just taking it out of the conversation for a second, watching Turtles, my yeah. thought was, hey, does this capture the vibe, the energy? Is it how... I would have loved to see New York represented when I was a kid. How would I, is this how I would like to see a group of teenage turtles represented as a kid? And, and for me as a young brained individual at that time, and then transported back to my young brain, watching the movie, it kind of hit everything I could really ask for it. And I actually, I'll take it even further. And if I'm going to criticize the movie, um, I will say I was hit with this feeling probably about 20 minutes left into the movie. I was hit with two things. One, I was going, oh man, this is almost done. That's kind of a, that's wild. It does wrap up rather quick. But the other thing being, is this so made for me that it doesn't ring (laughs) authentic to other people? And I I bring that up to say like, look, I, again, for anyone who doesn't know me, like I was like a hoodlum, right? Like my dad was a criminal. My mom worked at Nordstrom selling clothes. I grew up broke and I, uh, was a skate rat. I used to skate everywhere and steal shit and spray paint shit. Like I was like very much the type of person that this caters towards. And I loved hip hop and it, you know, uh, like I love Fresh Prince and I loved hip hop and I love TV and I love comics and I loved all this entertainment. And it led to me eventually being 
um, in entertainment and being a development exec for a company that focused almost entirely, it was a creator driven company, but it was a company that focused almost entirely on black and queer content. And so, you know, that wasn't an accident. I ended up there because of my personality. And when watching this, I, if I am to criticize at all, I was hit with this moment of, this is so for me, I wonder <laughs> if it rings true for anyone else. You know, like the no diggity montage, which I think is right. amazing. Like, so great. All the music cues, Tribe. Um, all of that, even putting Ice Cube in the movie, which like, I know we could yeah. kind of step aside as problematic elements of him as a personality, but just as an artist and performer, putting him in the film, even though he's a West Coast rapper, his energies pretty attuned with what I again it just felt like it was pandering to me which is not a complaint because I obviously I fucking well I I, I benefit from it but it was a, a concern I had where I was like oh my god is this so pandered for me that anyone else would be like meh I, I'm gonna answer you in in I mean obviously I cannot speak for the mass audiences in general I, I also got that sort of feeling uh and I think to me, that is the strength of this movie is that it is able to capture this sort of nostalgia. Like to me, I was like, this felt like playing with Ninja Turtles toys. Like it felt more like that than anything, any other Ninja Turtles media I have ever experienced was just like that feeling of sitting down with your friends and playing with toys and fighting a giant gross monster whale fly thing um <laughs> and i guess to your point um keith like if it captures an energy and does it well and, and has an like an energy that is exciting for kids maybe the specific reference isn't important i i guess to say just to again speak like super frankly i this is the first time that a turtles movie committed to the idea that the turtles could be black and like cast sure half of the voice actors is black yeah. and i don't you know i don't want to be like the three white dudes having the conversation about racing the turtles movie but <laughs> i do think it's worth bringing up that this is one of the first times they really kind of at least semi committed to that energy i mean april's been black for a while and omar benson miller did voice Raphael in rise so it's not insane but it's well, an interesting he element yeah, but but it's a it, it's a first time where they specifically were trying to make them feel like young, like young urban teenagers in New York yeah. City. And when you do that, you're going to want to cast more diversely than just four white mid forties voice actors. You're <laughs> you're gonna so. want, you know what I mean? Like yeah want right. some authenticity with that and I, yeah. I think that's where that comes from uh i think the word that we, we've used so much in this review is specifically and i think you know i've often stated the more specific you make something the more universal mm -hmm. it becomes so even yeah. if it isn't you know going back to your question alec about will this make sense to anybody who didn't have your same background does it feel authentic to people who have that background now is, I guess, kind of more what I'm saying. Because it's so tailored to my version of that story that I'm curious if you're like, and I guess you don't have to be a black teen in New York, but it's just the energy for sure. It seems to be trying to occupy that space. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I'm going to speak real to them. I think it's going to speak to 
to an inner city audience different than it is a rural or a suburban. But I I do think that um, people want to see things that aren't them. People yeah. do want to – I mean, yeah. they want to see them. They want to be represented. But they also want to go to the movies to exp- – People want to be able to see themselves in things that are not themselves. Right. Like, I, you know, we grew up about as far removed as as New York as you could get. But I still loved the Ninja Turtles. I, right. You know, sure. well, I mean, and a lot of people did. It was like one of the most. Exactly. That's my point. Right? Like <laughs> it was one of the most popular generation of us. Yeah. But no, that's my I, point. I an that, entire yeah. generation of us grew up with these characters that that belong to the city and because of that we could feel connected to this larger idea to this larger world i i felt like while watching the movie that was at the forefront not well kids like this i think kids will like this because it is authentic it is real it is unique well, you know it, it, it and it's fun I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's, they it's they funny, even have to think about the movie um, in those terms. I think that's working subjectively, or that you know that's working subversively. But I think ultimately, is it entertaining? Is it uh, working as a story? Can they connect to the characters? Um, yeah. And as far in as, in terms of animation goes, is it? Uh, competitive with what else is happening out there. And I think more than exceeds most of it, with the exception of maybe the Spider-Verse movies. I mean, yeah. this movie yeah. is uh, wholly original to look at. And I just loved, you know, just taking in whole sections of the film as moving tableau. Yeah. Even if I wasn't always, like, super hyped on the story, because... This skews a little young for me, if I'm being perfectly honest. But um, uh, I I think artistically, uh, you can't say anything negative about the movie. Uh, last last point, and before we uh, grade this, um, sure. this goddamn score and music supervision is oh. so good. Killer. Killer. Yeah. Like soundtrack I, and score are both incredible. Yeah, yeah. I have seen I've seen people, you know, talking about, you know, like Oppenheimer's score of the year, which is incredible. Like I, I, I score. I'm not trying yeah. to take anything away from Oppenheimer, but I, I just think that like and same with Spider-Verse. I, I feel like people have kind of underestimated the fucking muscle behind the sound design of this movie. Like they did not take any shortcuts it is fucking rich the score and the soundtrack are both i just chef's kiss yeah i mean no you're right and they they emphasize the energy of the again like the hip-hop influence on the Mm -hmm. on the the turtles and the city Mm -hmm. and then are able to i mean i already talked about how incredible i thought the black street montage was that no diggity montage (laughs) yeah but also just Superfly talking in hip hop lyrics, and it's just again, music felt so ingrained to the core of yeah. the film. Um, yeah, it, was it, a part it, of it felt just as important as 
every other aspect of the movie. It felt just as important as the visual design and the voice acting. And it it, it, it feels very cohesive right. in trying to capture this this young urban energy. Right. And it yeah. felt like it was kind of um edited to the score. Like it's it's almost mm-hmm. like, you know, the movie mm-hmm. has a BPM that's uh, moving along with the score, which is just, you know, great editing as well. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, one of the reasons I, I enjoyed it, I, as, a, as a big, lifelong, you know, Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor fan, since he's gone in more and more into film scores, um, you know, he started out kind of just doing soundscapey stuff you would hear on, like, a betweener track on an... Nine Inch Nails album, and then now like very far away from that. Uh, Trent Reznor with Atticus Ross. With Atticus Ross. Well, they've been working yeah. on Nine Inch Nails together as well. Uh, no, I, I know. I just, but here, I, you know, he, I, I just, they I, are collaborators. So I want to give credit where credit's due. For, for sure. But here, it seems like he's like given permission to to do just like a hard hitting industrial soundtrack, you know, as hard as anything on like the broken EP. Um, well, I, at at Comic Con, they specifically talked about the. Uh, we got to see a little uh, preview uh, of like you know the opening sequence and stuff, and they specifically talked about how like they wanted it to sound like a garage band, uh, you know, and you're getting that through the lens of Trent Reznor, who has fucking you know decades of experience on top of this kind of grungy industrial sound um so yeah it's just the way so that that, rich and the way that they're able to toggle from that into the hip-hop scores and back and forth you wouldn't think that that would necessarily work but it all comes together beautifully it's seamless it's seamless mm-hmm. yeah so what are, what are we giving it? Alec, I'll let you go first. So, grade it uh, A to F. Do you do a plus minus system or is this? Sure. Yeah, you can do plus minus. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I think it's an A minus for me. And if I could kind of chalk that up to just one basic sentence is, uh, or as much as I can as a long-winded person, um, it is. There's a feeling I've been chasing for so long, which is the feeling of walking out of X-Men or X-Men 2 and going, like, come on, Claws, go. And for the <laughs> podcast, I made a fist and tried to make Claws come out of my hand. Um, and I think that that, that feeling um, is unique to a specific stage of life. I think it's when you're able to believe in the fantasy and... Uh, and I've chased that for so long as a film lover and entertainment lover. And this is probably the closest I've gotten to recapturing that in a long time. And I'm so excited at the idea of kids who are feeling that feeling for maybe not the first, but an early time with this movie and pretending they have Psy or Nunchucks <laughs> or you know, a stick, you know, which again, I love the way they use the stick. Um, and I, yeah, I think that that for me, that's more important than whatever quibbles I have with like it you know I wish I got more bebop and rock steady that I got or whatever so a minus for me Keith I 100% agree with you Alec uh I a minus was my letter grade going into this 
my my criticisms or quibbles there you know i would have liked a little bit more of this or you know maybe a little bit more of this or or, or whatever um but i feel like this movie's kind of lightning in a bottle and I, I i feel like it is able to capture an energy that i have not felt in a long long time and um and i you know if if this had come out in a year that didn't have a fucking spider-verse movie in in it uh to me this would be like oh man this is slam dunk uh the best animated feature i've seen this year um uh i just think it's so rich and unique and and trying to capture such a specific vibe while also making it uh appeal to the largest audience possible which is a fucking tightrope to walk so uh absolutely um i agree with everything you said a, uh a minus for me and and all of my quibbles are are minimal at best i'm giving it a b uh, I liked it a lot. Ooh, hiss. You bitch. <laughs> I, Ooh. I liked it a lot. Um, I suspect, uh, the, you know, people within the age range it was made for are going to like it even more. Um, it is a little kitty for me, personally. Some of the jokes don't land quite uh, as well as I would, you know, would have hoped, uh, given Seth Rogen's involvement. But, you know, it. I totally understand why it was written the way it was written. I don't think the movie does as great of a job at um, uh, tying together some of the plot threads. Uh, you, we, there's kind of two competing villains in the movie. They, they barely connect at one point. It, uh, and because of that, there's a there's some space in the middle of the movie that where – we're sort of in free fall before we're back on track again. But I, I think that it's, there, yeah. I think it's a, a, a very unique movie. I love, again, love looking at it. It's artistically sound. Um, one of the definitely, if not for me, probably the second best Ninja Turtles movie, but I am um, comparing time. that with my, with my, uh, my nostalgia for the '89. I I, I feel like to 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 me this is parallel to the like to to me it's it's so different than the '89 movie. Like, well, it's to me, definitely this, this generation's version of it. But the '89 version is a little darker. It is a little more adult. It is a little more uh uh story-wise cohesive so i it's to, to me it's kind of a toss-up but i i i did not ever think that there would be a ninja turtles movie that would rival uh yeah. the original in my you know like right in yeah. terms of quality and i think the original for- has a technical marvel element that's very hard to to, com- to compare to because those suits are so incredibly impressive like i mean yeah they I mean, they couldn't even recreate it for the sequels. Yeah. Right. And, and I mean, funny, funny enough, I do. If I were in my office, I would have uh, a Turtles in Time poster behind me as well. Oh, hell yeah. I, I, <laughs> even though the movie's severely flawed, I have an affinity for it. But and I'll say this, too, and then I'll, we can stop talking about this cast again. Sorry. But I um, uh, the original films, the 89 
90s films. I loved it. And I always wanted to hang out with the turtles when I watched it, but I never felt like I was one of the turtles. And I think part of that is a flaw of Casey Jones and also just the size. Mm. Like they just look like such adults. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, and I think a lot of the films through, you know, uh, executive order probably have pushed for an in where a kid can see themselves in it more. And I do think even though he's been played at, by older men or middle-aged men or young teens, whatever it is. I do think Casey Jones as a character is often used as that because it's like, mm. hey, you're not a turtle, but you're like a young dude who could play hockey and fight and join with the turtles. And so I'm so happy Casey's not in the film. I kind of hope he's not in the sequel either uh, or the show. I actually would love to keep Casey away from it for as long as possible because I think this is the first time that you're really able to see yourself as a turtle. Obviously because they lean into the teenage element, but also because there were like April was our, our kid, I suppose, but but she was so active that she still felt like a member. Of well, the and, and they, it, you know, and you felt her from the turtles lens. Like I, yeah. I thought it was a fun choice to have, like you know, Leonardo crushing on her, and and just that this idea of like, oh, there's this person outside of our social circle that is cooler than us that we like. Yeah want to hang out with so so she didn't feel like a cypher character in the way that she could have uh i i do like that they treated the turtles like cyphers like even though they're weird ninja mutants like we're going to make them the relatable ones we're going to see it from their lens let's go ahead and move on to the streaming homework with uh, Alec actually presented to us, and that is uh, the Jim Jarmusch film uh, Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. And Keith, uh, why don't you tell us what this movie's about? Uh, okay. Forrest Whitaker plays uh, the titular ghost dog uh, who is a assassin for hire for a, a local uh, mafioso character by the name of Louie. He accepts a job to hit a made man uh, within the mafia family. And when he does it, there is a witness of um, a young woman uh, who is the daughter of the the mafia head at large um which is you know largely why the hit was made but because the circumstance behind his death was you know it was witnessed and in a fashion that was not what they were expecting this mafia family decides that they you know this was too messy and they have to clean up all the loose ends and they decide to put out sort of a contract on Ghost Dog. And a lot of the movie is just him and this mafia family sort of existing within the realms of a Jim Jarmusch narrative. <laughs> right. And that was that was going to be how I would frame the review, you know, there's Jim Jarmusch has a few different modes 
that he goes into, um, you know, if he's not doing sort of these uh, hangout, talky movies about, you know, people in black and white cafes uh, waxing philosophical about the world. Um, Sometimes he'll take that tone and apply it to genre, whether it be like he did with Dead Man, the Western with uh, Johnny Depp, or whether it be Only Lovers Left Alive, the vampire film, um, or a movie like this where he applies it to a crime narrative. Uh, and we, we've we seen movies kind of like this before, you know, that sort of takes the idea of the the rogue samurai or the the ronin and sort of recast him as an inner city uh hitman as we did with uh the movie Les Samurai which we talked about on the podcast um the Melville film or uh even Drive as elements of that you know the, the uh Army of Shadows as well which is like another take on the same story yeah. right yeah yeah. And where you have the, the a sort of quiet killer who's at odds w- morally with his line of work and how he kind of keeps people at arm's length, but also sort of yearns well, for it, yeah, something and, and, and more and normal. This, and this idea of, you know, this sort of um, honor amongst thieves and this this sort of code within the profession of like you know he's a killer but he has these rules that he abides by that separates him from uh you know from the the sort of larger population of um of the criminal underworld that he might associate with right it's similar to also like gloria the um John Cassavetti's film uh, or any of these stories of like, yeah, the dangerous person that has to turn against the greater force it used to be aligned with. Right. Right. Um, but I think part of what's interesting with, with ghost dog, if we're going to get into it, Go for is, it. Um, well, that he's, I mean, he's not a Ronin. I mean, he is dedicated to a master that he serves. Right. Sure. So he, mm-hmm. he, he is, uh, all the way to the end of the film, like without spoiling any spoiling, without spoiling anything, uh, he is dedicated not only to his code but the master that the code tells him he needs to have. And I think that, um, you know, obviously it's not an accident that I picked this one with uh, or suggested this one with Turtles because it is obviously the the hip hop element is a big part of it. RZA does the score for this and plays a very small role in it. Um, and hip hop is a big part of of this story, um, and it is this blend of black culture and samurai culture, or in general, to be just like a little more broad, like martial arts culture, um, right? And, and Eastern philosophy and that kind yeah, of stuff. And, yeah, and and this, yeah, and and living in a in a area in a place that you experience very differently, and and because of that, have found an external code that you're applying to it right so in Mm. turtles splinter his code and his rules are very severe and very clear 
and ghost dogs are very are very clear. Um, and I also just again, and we don't have to harp on this part, but like just to add that these are also both stories that are New York hip hop stories by mm-hmm. white directors. So it is through like a white lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that's also just like worth mentioning. Well, but, and, and I I think all of these all of those things have this sort of intersection, right? Of of uh, you know, there is a, a fascination within uh, black culture with like anime and samurai movies and ninjas and uh, a fascination with, you know, within white culture of hip hop. And, uh, uh, you know, th- there is a Venn diagram, right, where all of these things cross over. And that's when you get stuff like Ninja Turtles and Ghost Dog. Uh, right, which I think is is pretty cool. It, yeah, it, I mean RZA and Wu Tang Clan in general, right? Like RZA, right. Yeah. could go toe to toe with anybody on martial arts knowledge. Like I, the, I don't know if y'all watch Nardwar interviews or anything like that, but if you were to watch him, the man's knowledge is unfucking believable. I mean, there's a reason he also then goes on to make Man with the Iron Fists, and and I think you know his collaboration with Jim Jarmusch is such an interesting thing. You know, I mean, Jim and music are very tied. Right. Obviously, like. Yeah, Tom mm-hmm. Waits is in a lot of his films, and then just musicians in general. Like Wu Tang's also well, in cigarettes, but yeah. And he he tends to have a, a sort of, um, you know, as a director, he's sort of a jazz musician of direction, right? Like there's a tendency to sort of play out the scenes as as much as they're going to go without necessarily. And I don't think this movie is an exception, but uh, this idea of like we're going to play it out for the vibes, right? Versus the overall story structure. I th- I think a big yeah. part of Jarmusch's style has always been, you know, that marries all of his different modes. Is mm. he's never really been a plot forward guy. Like his movies have plot. He's not totally yeah. divorced of it, um, but he's a lot more interested in feel. And he's a yeah, lot more it's, interested. It's feeling first, and and let's get to the story through the feeling, right? And he's right. more interested in sort of the internal complexities of his characters, and letting that play out. Um, and you know, he he is a New York guy. He's he he his comeuppance was uh, you know during the 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 late seventies, early eighties, like punk and new wave and no wave movement. Um, and making experimental films and, you know, the, the punk culture, uh, kind of came up simultaneously with the Brooklyn hip hop culture and were very linked. I mean, that's why the Beastie Boys ended up going from Mm -hmm. being a hardcore band to being a a hip hop band in like a year (laughs) because those cultures were, um, were sort of parallel, and and I think that uh, it's interesting. It, it totally makes sense to me why Jarmusch would turn to RZA. I believe this is his first score too, um, mm-hmm. and uh, why he would include that in 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 this movie in the way that he does, um, mm-hmm. and I think comes out pretty explicitly in this film even though it is kind of a take on a tried and true genre, you know, uh, the, the sullen quiet hitman has to have one last 
you know, battle. Uh, you know, even yeah. going as far back to like westerns and things like that, they're kind of well, played it, with these but, ideas. But but I think structurally speaking, this movie is it avoids a lot of the western stuff. I think by playing more into the 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 sort of you know eastern samurai stuff meets New York. Um, right, like it 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 avoids the sort of you know, Sergio Leone feel of yeah. uh, samurai movie through the lens of Western, which is very hard, I think, to divorce um, from that. But because it's set in such an urban element and because Jim Jarmusch has such an eye for scene and for character uh, in letting these characters sort of breathe and live in these these moments uh it it feels distinct from the sort of quentin tarantino vibe of it uh yeah and i love that you know like the gangsters in this are all kind of fucking goofballs and yeah and and old and not the most threatening and Mm -hmm. Um, they feel like from another era, like they, the way they dress, yeah. the way that the, you know, the, the big, uh, amber, g- uh, goggles that they're wearing, the chains and all that stuff, which you could say there is a, there's a parallel to hip hop culture as well, uh, between, you know, uh, you know, uh, flexing and wanting to show your wealth and that kind of stuff. Um, uh-huh. and, and in this, well, and, in this and, movie, you I, do have one gangster who's, like well into his like late fifties who can uh spit bars uh to like yeah, public like enemy like perfect. Tape. Yeah. Yeah, love public enemy. <laughs> I think you're also tapping into another theme of the film, which is feeling out of time or feeling out of yeah. your you know, that wh- who you are does not well, fit and, into and, the and way the, the world's changing around you, right? The, the world's changing around you and fuck you. References yeah. This. yeah. Like it's not subtle about drawing these parallels to you know, Ghost Dog is a man whose honor exists out of time and place with where he is. And and the same goes for these gangsters. They all exist within this world that has left them behind. And they all kind of feel like they're playing gangster. Like, yeah. at first, I didn't know how to take that. I thought, like, I don't know, these Goombas are, like, kind of a... St- Stereo, like stereotypical to the point of being hard to take serious until I realized that then I, I, I saw the girl with like the bobbed wig and everything. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is all intentional. Like, where well, I, I, <laughs> I think the most important uh detail as far as that goes is that they're they're back to on rent, yeah, right? Like, like these aren't the good fellas. You know, these are these are just sort of goofballs who have been playing gangster for so long, but they can't afford their fucking meeting hall or or whatever. Uh, you know, and and I think the movie brings it up multiple times, and I I think intentionally, like these aren't these guys aren't running the city. They no. they want to run the city, and they understand a world where maybe they once would have but mm-hmm. they're 
also facing, you know, difficult times. It, 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 I, I, to me, that was the moment, like the second time the guy was like, come on, you guys owe me fucking rent. I was like, oh, fuck, like that is brilliant. No, no, just again, it's pushing this idea of you can't change the change around you. And it is yeah. why a code is so important. And it's why Ghost Dog latches on to the the way of the samurai as instructed by the book uh, so passionately. And so, you know, it's so hard to adapt or change um, and to survive within that. And the only way for us as a society, and I think this even ties back to the, the, the strike conversation and conversations we could have about greed and, and, and change, but without a code, without a s- set of ways to make yourself the best version of yourself, uh, you'll drown or disappear uh, in into society. You know, this would have been around the time that um, they were making concerted efforts to clean up the city and change the image and make it feel more yeah. modern. And um, that really was a, a post 9-11 effort as well. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, there might be a subtext here about, um, you know, the old characters of the city, the the old city clashing with the new realities. Yeah, I mean, Rudy Giuliani was cleaning up the streets and bullshit like that, right? Like, right. I mean, partially before, but then also anyone who's involved in this movie will have lived through watching Times Square change dramatically from the Paul Schrader hardcore version of Times Square to what you know now we would say like there's the ryan seacrest era of Times square right sure right yeah and uh you know jarmusch himself having come up in the experimental film and the no wave scene um from like the east village in that area he went you know the, all of those people were, were allowed to make the weird uh transgressive art that they were allowed to make because they could do it essentially squatting for like $50 a room in these yeah. these cheap apartments yeah. which all either got torn down or gentrified into oblivion. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's very much on the front lines of like watching the city change. The transfer of knowledge is very yeah. fascinating in this movie to me as well because... The, 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 the fascination with books... I thought was yeah. really cool and like the the written word and you know the idea of like read this story and tell me what you think about it. I I really liked that. Mm-hmm. Me too. And, and obviously Rashomon as like one of the big books talked about in the film is also fascinating. And mm-hmm. um, you know now that I'm older, you know I I haven't I probably haven't watched this movie in about seven years. It's been like a long time. That might not be true. Maybe like four or five years. But it's been a minute, and I do feel like I'm a little bit more experienced now and. Uh, know a little bit more about the things that this film is referencing and this just seems to get better and better every time I watch it and and I think part of that is because how clearly purposeful the texts transferred from person to person are mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rashomon obviously as a film one of like the most important samurai movies ever made, but as a book, just also a fascinating piece of, of, of literary history. And then um, what were the other books that are, are used in this film? There were, there were a few, I wish I took notes. 
Uh, I, I remember, um, yeah, there were, there was, <laughs> there's a, a pretty funny scene where ghost dog is talking to Perlene and she just yes, like started pulling like, yeah. multiple books out of her lunchbox. I remember Frankenstein was one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. that, and they talk about liking the, the book better than the film. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I also just think, you know, there's obviously a parallel there of like, connecting to you know this sort of monster that's created by circumstance versus um intent uh i i can't remember all the books it was like a um, smutty nurse a night nurse the night nurse yeah yeah Yeah. that's what i liked about the movie as a whole is you know it works as a plot i'm invested in the 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 crime narrative Mm. in the revenge tale all of that is fine enough but the reason that it stands out or the reason that really separates it from its it the others like it is that it's more about the moments in between the moments that the movie usually pays attention to yeah and and i i think there's this this huge focus on and, it, you know, instead of plot with a capital P, like, you know, how many movies have we seen that are about this sort of revenge plot? Um, but it focuses on these characters. And like you said, the, the these sort of lived in moments in between. You get to see these mafioso guys that are just kind of in their own way, these dorky goombas. And, you know, Ghost Dog himself is kind of a dork, like... I loved that he did this like flourish with his gun where he would like, (laughs) Oh, he's a dork, but he's a cool dork. Like, you know, when you're fucking flipping your silencer around and then sheathing it, like it's your sword. I love it. But, but it's also like, it it doesn't, it informs the character. Like it's not Mm -hmm. just this thing that's done to look cool because he kind of doesn't look cool doing Mm -hmm. it. Well, yeah, no, not at all. I mean, he looks, uh, it's a silly thing to do and unnecessary, but that's kind of his character, right? He's so, yeah. he's so connected. He's this. so into this idea of him as a samurai that these yeah. flourishes to him are necessary. And as a story, it's necessary. But like anyone looking into this situation would be like, all right, you're kind of a dork. Like you're, <laughs> you're, an amazing killer, but yeah. Well, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. If For- I don't know. If Forrest has ever looked cooler, though. I will say. I mean, with the with the braids and just looking uh, all fly. I mean, well, he has a- one line. He, my one of my favorite parts <laughs> is when he's quoting the way of the samurai, and he says, um, "From time to time, if you wake up and your your skin is blemished from bad sleep, it might be necessary for a samurai to wear rouge." Yeah, and then it cuts to him stealing and wearing the fucking flyest suit ever oh, he's just in this unbelievably beautiful crisp blue suit he looks fucking sleek he looks got shiny and good. Mm-hmm. he's a bad motherfucker i i love that turn i love that they talk about the aesthetic of the po- of the samurai being important because yeah. you know yeah, again to hip hop sure. and yeah 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 <laughs> yeah i think this is one of um one of his best performances and a great uh a great platform to show what he can do unfortunately he's 
he's been around for so long now. I mean, going as far back as what Animal House was he in that? He was in fast something. Times, I think is maybe was it fast, fast times. Time? Fast times. You're yeah, right. He's a, he's a he's a quarterback or a linebacker or something, and he's a football player in the film. Small part, but he's in it. Yeah. Yeah, oh, and he's been in, you know, a ton of movies since, and he's. He's always a working actor, and he's always uh, very committed to whatever he's in, whether he's in A pictures or B pictures. And unfortunately, yeah. you know, I feel like his after The Last King of Scotland, his star has kind of faded, and he's been doing more and more kind of like uh, B pictures and, and um, low-grade sort of copycat movies and things like that but oh but he's in black panther man i mean it was a billion dollar man. Oh, granted, it's a smaller part but he's a yeah he's no a, i mean a, i didn't hit in general a, a thing i could complain about about modern hollywood is that we have pulled away from these kind of odder looking character actors oh, sure. in a way that is really unfortunate and like i think so much about bob hoskins and him as an actor and also right. as a figure of sensuality and how earlier films with him, like, um, um, well, you would, you would not have had stuff. him. He's, he's a sexual character. He's a sexual being. And I think there's this movement yeah. away from that as movies mm. get less sexual. They somehow are also more pretty. And there is a something lost. Why with, cause, cause, Forrest well, does not if, become if, a worse actor. If Who Roger Rabbit was made today, Bob Hoskins would not have been the lead. Right. right. And if mermaids are weird today, Cher would not. That's the film, right? Mermaids? Yeah. Cher would not be yeah. fucking Bob Hoskins. Um, yeah. But in that movie, he's so tender and interesting. And again, well, sexual. It, and we're not afraid of it. And, and I feel it, that way about Forrest Whitaker. It, well, it's unfortunate that Forrest Whitaker has probably been competing with Lawrence Fishburne for every role that either of them have been up to, you know, up for for the last. 15 20 years like right. that you, you know what i mean and when you they're... could also say the same thing about his career as well um i think both of them have, have struggled a little bit as they've gotten older and, and the only reason i bring that up is because for people of a certain generation who are maybe they've never seen him allowed to be good and allowed to see him <laughs> um holding down an like entire his movie teeth into a real role yeah yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely uh, that they yeah, should they is, should yeah. definitely take a look at this and see forest at its best um but yeah i i really yeah. enjoyed the movie we don't typically grade our streaming homework because you know the history uh is usually enough to to kind of uh to kind of go on on yeah. that but i i i mean i'm a big Jarmusch fan, generally speaking, I haven't loved every single movie I've seen of his, but I'm always interested in what he does. And this is up there, I think, um, with the best of his work. I enjoyed this movie a lot. I, at first, I was a little um, reticent of it because it's, I will say, glacially paced. Um <laughs> And, you know, maybe I it was one of those things that I maybe was putting off for too long and then was like, ah, fuck, I got to I got to make sure I watch this movie. But I, I also think that, you know, sometimes that is the best circumstance to watch a movie is like, I need to watch this and to just let it overtake me uh, because this this did like I think. The characters are so strong and the, the world is so 
like this feels sort of anti-Tarantino to me. And like instead of taking this seedy underworld and, and glossing over making the coolest version of it, it's like, OK, let's make these people feel as real and lived in as possible and take all the sort of shine away from that. I think it's one of the most unique approaches I've seen to the sort of samurai narrative. Uh, and I've watched, you know, a ton of movies that have influenced, been influenced by that and drawn from that. Um, yeah, yeah I, I ended up having a ton of fun with this, even though it wasn't maybe the, the sort of John Wick fun that I was originally anticipating. Yeah, it's a lot closer to the um, the Joaquin Phoenix, Lynn Ramsey flick. Um, you were never really here, there, here. Um, that's very slow, mm-hmm. vibey thing. I mean, I after, I rewatched it this morning because I'm on strike, I don't have a job. And so <laughs> I, after finishing it, turned on an old Tribe Called Quest um, music video and then basically played through 90s and early 2000s hip-hop music videos for like three out. And I, if anyone listening feels at all compelled to listen to a suggestion by me for some reason, <laughs> um, I would love nothing more than for someone on a weekend, preferably in their home or a friend's home, to smoke the largest, fattest blunt that they can get their hands on and watch this movie and then just allow that vibe to really continue with you. And then hopefully maybe they'll put it on an old Wu-Tang album or uh, affiliate, you know, um, Jizz's liquid swords or something. I mean, I, I, I just think there's, again, talking about like energies captured with turtles. And now again with this, this is a, a uniformly felt energy or rather not uniformly. I'm sorry. That's not the right word. This is a, this is an energy that, is felt among an entire collective of people, right? Mm. And I think it crosses genre lines and racial lines and 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 generational. class lines to a degree, and absolutely generational. Yeah, brilliant addition. Yeah. Thank you. And mm-hmm. and I think any film that can recapture something like that, like a collective feeling, so effectively, mm-hmm. is worth absorbing yourself into. And for me, and this film sitting and allowing yourself to be captured by the vibe and allowing yourself to be just like a little bored for a little bit like which which is one of the most powerful things a human being can do i think it's something i'm really trying to get better about be bored for like 20 minutes because the shit pays off like it's for me yeah yeah and i don't want it to sound like this movie's boring because i don't think it is uh but it's it's not instantly gratifying it takes some way some acclimation you know i do think you remember when drive came well, out I, and that woman was mad that it wasn't a fast and the furious movie i do yeah yeah <laughs> totally. i think if you go into this thinking it's john wick you're gonna probably be bummed but if you go into this thinking it's closer to drive then yeah it, well and the log happier. line makes it sound like that you know right like it's it's about an assassin who gets double crossed in a job and has to go against you know his masters and like on paper that sounds very action forward yeah and it 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 could be in another screenplay it would be i i ended up loving this movie for not being that for Mm -hmm. not being as uh easy you know like i i liked 
the quirks and the you know like there's this fucking hilarious bit with his best friend who only speaks french and yeah. uh they they keep saying the same thing to each other but they don't understand each other and it it's just this beautiful moment that you would not get if you didn't let the movie breathe right and there's a beauty to that right it's the type of thing you can only get away with if you're jim jarmusch who admittedly i'm i'm probably split on as a director like i i thoroughly enjoy this is for sure my favorite movie of his but i thoroughly enjoy a bunch of his stuff and i also don't get some of his stuff all oh, you know well, not I, there, but, yeah. like there are movies yeah. of, I, uh, even, that was my polite way of saying i, I actively dislike it. yeah but, i mean <laughs> it, the 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 zombie thing he did a few years ago i thought was a hot mess I don't die but uh, yeah, Only Lovers Left theater, Alive yeah. was like one of my favorite movies the year it came out. I mean, that was, uh, and I love, you know, his older movie, you know, the black and white stuff like um, Down by Law and Strangers in Paradise. And, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just a big fanboy for that era of like gritty yeah. underground film. But, um, but yeah, so thank you for, for bringing that to us. And, Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for talking yeah. to us about the strike and uh, divulging what you were allowed to divulge and giving us your honest opinions and thoughts about the the future of uh, how these negotiations should or should not go. Um, yeah. Now, before I, I, I close this out with all of our social media and blah, 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 where do you want to direct people to? Oh, for me? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, my only social is, is Twitter, really. Um, so you're welcome to follow me. It's it's a mix of uh, of bad takes and thirst trap photos. So uh, <laughs> do that. Do with what do what you will with that information. Uh, if you want to support me in any kind of reasonable way, uh, you're welcome to reach out to me or my reps and try to meet with me about something. Um, I may have a comic book next year to plug but i actually don't know if that's going to happen so maybe that's not worth bringing up and then uh i i I will want to know more about that in the future so yeah look hey i'll come back on if it comes if it comes out i'll come back on and 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 do i'm telling you i'm gonna come on your podcast absolutely sure yeah and do promo for my own fucking bullshit you're always um, welcome but beyond that Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. Um, but yeah, you can. You're more than welcome to watch True Lies on Paramount Plus uh, if you want to. Um, it's a CBS procedural. It's really fun. I'm very proud of it. If you have to watch any episode, please make it episode. Ah, oh, shit. We changed the order. I think it was. I think it's eight. Episode eight now. It's my favorite episode. Harry and Helen team up with a set of communist spies from Cuba to save the mm-hmm. world together. And oh, my opinions are all over it. It's great. Cool. Yeah. cool. Um, just to oh, make it a little yeah. easier for people, what is your Twitter handle? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's just Alec Angerson. Uh, it's an E for Angerson and an A for Alec. And uh, there you go. All right. And what is who uh, represents you again in case people oh, were sure. interested? Yeah, represented by Gersh Agency um, and Rain Management, Lyra Tan at Gersh and Dallas Lynn Lamb at, at Rain. Um, Thank you both if you listen to this. I love you. Cool. Yeah, no, please listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If anybody has anything to say about anything we've talked about on this podcast or previous, you can reach out to us at our email at mcguffinpot at gmail.com. 
You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram, Letterboxd, uh, uh, TikTok, YouTube. We now have a YouTube version of the podcast with timestamps. If you want to skip around to specific reviews, please subscribe to us on uh, Spotify or uh, uh, iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review. It helps us move up in the algorithm and uh, puts us in front of more eyeballs. Uh, also, word of mouth, just tell a friend. Um, and you can follow me individually at my Twitter and Instagram at BC Cassidy. Uh, you can also read the reviews I post for the Idaho State Journal, Googling Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews or Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment, and that'll take you to where they archive the reviews. And be sure to read the other articles and reviews by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in. And you can follow me on uh, pretty much all the socials, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, at Keith Foster Kid. And um, uh, if you're interested in seeing me perform, I do live comedy at Mockingbird Improv. I am part of the show's lyrics and laugh and uh, improv versus stand up. Um, uh, so you can check those out at MockingbirdImprov.org. OK. And that's cool. That's awesome. I didn't know you did that. <laughs> that is the end of the episode. Humans okay. are the demon scum of the earth. Avoid them. Don't say hi. They lust to murder that which is different for them. To interact with them is to die.